Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Saturday, March the 4th, 2023. It is currently 1.16 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas, where it's a beautiful 74 degrees. There's not a cloud in the sky. I had to look back at the window to make sure that I wasn't going to say something incorrect. No, there's not a cloud in the sky. Big, beautiful, blue Texas sky, 74 degrees. This is why everyone should move to Texas. No, wait, let me let me clarify. This is why everyone should move to Abilene, Texas. Abilene, Texas, and then you should attend Victory Baptist Church. That's that's kind of, I think it's a sign, right? It's 74, March the 4th, 2023, blue sky. Come on, that's got to be a sign. Okay, I don't believe in signs like that, but, you know, I'm, I'm joking around. But it, yes, it's a beautiful Saturday afternoon here in West Texas. So, I know this. I've made a lot of bad decisions in my life, and I've made a lot of horrible mistakes, But living in Texas, the best decision, especially weather-wise, right? Because that could be someplace where there's it's snowing today. Like, what? It's cold? Like, no, 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 no. I want to be right here. Beautiful, big, blue Texas sky, 74 degrees. That sounds perfect. All right? So I made at least one good decision in my life. Now, to be fair... I didn't make I didn't make the decision to be born in Texas. I had no control over that. And I really didn't make the decision to be living in Texas now. The United States military made that decision for me. So I so but I guess you could say divine providence. God put me in Texas, meaning that obviously there's something. I mean, you know, you talk about grace and you talk about, you know, a blessing. Something good happened, all right? And it is Texas Independence Week, also. It is Texas. March the 2nd was Texas Independence Day. And, well, today, I guess we're still in Texas Independence Week. The siege of the Alamo would still be going. We won't go through Texas history. We won't go through that. But I say all of that to say I, I, I wanted to take credit for making this decision to live in Texas, but I really can't. Full transparency, the government sent me back here. So I really can't, I guess I stayed in Texas. So maybe I made a good decision there. But with with all of my bad decisions, there's one good decision. But for 2023, I made a really, 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 really bad decision. I made a bad decision. Here's what I decided to do. There is a church, I'm not going to name it city, state, its location. But I knew this church, knew of this church, had knew a little bit about it, but I, I knew this about the church, that I disagreed with their doctrine and their theology and definitely disagreed with their approach to scripture. But I realized, in fact, someone told me about it, that they were beginning a about a two-year, almost a year and a half to two-year journey through the gospel of John. And I thought, you know what? That would be fun each week to listen to how they go through the gospel of John, Right. I mean, John chapter one opens up, you know, 
with the, this amazing section of scripture dealing with in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word or the word w- w- was with God, the word was God. Okay, how are they going to handle this? You've got issues with the Trinity, the deity of Christ. You've got so much there. Then you go down and the word became flesh. We've got the incarnation. We have all of these major doctrines right here in the gospel of John. So here's a church that I disagree with. Here's a church that I'm not a fan of how they handle scripture, but this would be awesome to hear how they handle these scriptures and I would be challenged. So there was a part of me thinking this will be fun. This will be a great idea, but it only took about two to three weeks before I, I mean, I, I realized it almost immediately there. I don't know what they're doing. They're not really studying John. It's like they're using John, but they have another agenda. And they were, it was just, it's been bizarre to listen to. We've reviewed, I think, at least one of the sermons from this series. And, uh, well, I realized it's Saturday. And guess what? I have not listened to last Sunday sermon. And tomorrow's going to be Sunday. That means I would be two weeks behind. And I don't want to be two weeks behind. <laughs> So I'm like, okay, I need to listen to this sermon today. So I decided, well, I made a bad decision to start going listening to this entire series on John. I already want to quit. But hey, if you start something, you don't quit, you finish it, right? That, that's kind of what I try to do. I don't always accomplish that, but I try. I try. I really do try. So I'm like, okay, so what do I do? What do I do? Do I just listen to this? I can just, I can kind of come up here to the studio. I could grab something to drink. I could just grab my Bible notebook and go, okay, hit play. Let's listen, take some notes and I can be done. But I'm like, you know what? If, if, if I have to go through this and I don't really want to go through this, it's my bad decision. Well, I know what I'll do. I'll make everyone suffer with me. I'll go live on the internet and I'll, I'll listen to it with them and we will all suffer together because Nobody likes to suffer alone. Suffering with people is far much better than suffering alone, right? So, yeah, here we go. I, I, and I, uh, I, I really, I really envision that it would be like, oh, wow, look at how they handle this text. Look at how they handle this text. But it's been just a bizarre journey through John. And last Sunday, they had, they had arrived at John chapter 2. And if you ask me, well, what did they do with John chapter one? To be honest with you, I could not even summarize it. I, in some cases, I don't even know if they were even actually dealing with the text in any meaningful way. It was, it was, yeah, okay. The person who says, here to suffer with you, they're partially responsible for this entire ordeal because they were like, hey, they're going to be covering the gospel of John. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, what a horrible idea. See, so I don't know. Was my idea saying, yes to listening to this series or was my bad was my bad decision listening to this person i don't know was should what where was where where did i go so wrong yeah i'll i'll listen to all of these sermons or did i go wrong by listening to this person at all so so many questions and so few answers but are you ready i hope so i have this is how what i have set up right here just so that you know I have my law and gospel book right here next to me because I was preparing for tomorrow. I have my iPad that's currently charging. I have a bottle of Dasani because we all know, ladies and gentlemen, if it's not Dasani, it's not water. All right. So I got, I got that. I got a pencil. I got a Bible. 
Where did my journal go? Hang on, looking at my, I got my book bag right here behind me. Um, I, where, oh, I've got another Bible there. Where did my journal go? No, no, no. Oh, there it is. Found my journal. Found my journal. So we got a journal. We got a pencil. We got a Bible, iPad, long gospel, Dasani, because if it's not Dasani, it's not water, and a book bag with more Bibles. All right, so that's what I have. It's, I'm ready to go. I hope you're ready to go. I, I just, I just feel that I'm getting ready to pay for my bad decisions. I think I'm getting ready. Oh, such a bad idea, but I don't know. Hopefully something good will come from this. Hopefully. All right, here we go. Are you ready? So we're going to take a, a trip to a particular city, a particular state. Trust me, this bad teaching is not coming from Texas. Um, and we're going to travel there. We're going to see where this goes. I really, I, I don't really, like, how do I introduce this? Hey, welcome to a really horrible sermon series on the Gospel of John. Well, is it even really a sermon series on Gospel of John? I'm not even convinced it's about the Gospel of John anymore. In fact, I don't even really know what it's about. I, it's the whole thing. And then they do this weird thing where one week this person preaches, and the next week someone else's preaches, and the next week someone else preaches. And so there's no continuity. There's no flow. I, it's just a, uh, 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 that's what it is. All I can say right now is why am I listening to this? But you know what? I said I would, so I will. You're going to listen with me. Here we go. This is from last Sunday. Have your Bibles. John chapter two. We begin now. Well, good good morning, everyone. It's great to uh, be with you this morning. I also want to say good morning to all those who are watching online. My name is Chris Norman, and it's great to be uh, together today. Also very thankful that, um, as we do every Sunday, the message um, as it's being taught right now is being translated in Creole for all of our Haitian brothers and sisters. So if you see someone with... Uh, earphones in, they're not listening to music, they're actually getting simultaneous translation as someone's in a different room translating um, as I speak. And I, and I just have to say, and I know this is fleshly, I know this is carnal, I know this is ungodly, but I'm going to say it. Sometimes I'm baffled and confused by how the church world works. And I'm just going to and and I'm just going to get this out of the way. I'm gonna, it's going to be full transparency. This is going to be confession, all right? And I and I want you to understand I am saying this acknowledging that I have a sinful ungodly attitude about this, right? But I, I but I'm just going so I, I don't know what else to do other than just to, I can, I can hide it. I can keep it inside the cup and dress up the outside of the cup and make it look all good, but I'm just going to let it out. Here we go. You ready? Sometimes I am baffled, perplexed, and confused Wait, because I listen to a lot of sermons and there'll be a church. It'll have maybe 500 members, a thousand members. They may have multiple campuses, 
like, you know, a north side, south side, east side, west side. They have a translation team. They have a praise and worship team. They have a graphics team. They have a, um, you know, multimedia team. They have an internet team. They have like all, a staff. They have multiple buildings. They have multiple campuses. They, and they, and some get, they have thousands of people listening online. And then you start listening to their teaching or preaching. And sometimes all I can do is like, I don't get it. What? How can they have all of that? And that's what they're offering. Like, why are people supporting that with their time, their money, their focus, their attention? Why? Why are they receiving all of these donations? What are people getting? And I know it's fleshly because I sit there and go, well, wait a minute. I know I offer more content than that. I know that even my the, the worst content that I've ever put out is still better than that. Like, it, it just makes no sense to me. Like, I'm just baffled. Look, and, and you've got to hear what I'm trying to say. There are times I can listen to a church and go, man, their doctrine is whacked beyond all comprehension. I completely disagree, but I can understand why they have a thousand people. I can understand why they have five campuses. I can understand why they have a staff of a hundred. I can understand it. I can understand why people were supported because even though I think it's wrong doctrine, I mean, they're teaching, they're giving people something, they're giving something in depth, they're communicating, they're teaching. And then there are other times I'm like, I just, I don't get, like, for example, Joel Olstein, can someone explain that to me? How can he be inside of basically a sports arena with like, what, 20,000 people at one of the top rated you know, podcast and, and television broadcast. Like, I don't even understand how that should be. What are, what are people getting listening to him? It's like, it's like air. It's like nothingness. So sometimes I get it, even though I disagree with the doctrine. And sometimes I just don't, sometimes like, well, I, I, well to be fair, sometimes what I just, I, 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 maybe I shouldn't say this. Sometimes I'm like, why am I even, why am I even bothering or try? Why even try? Why do try to do like 900 episodes a year and talk about this and this and this and this and this and this and this, and this when it, it's obviously not what people want, what people want. Why try to have a church that does things like literally do, nobody wants that. Nobody wants that kind of church. Nobody wants that kind of podcast. Nobody wants any. Like, what's the point? It's almost like it's 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 almost like what it feels. This is what it feels like. Now, I've never experienced this in sports. I've never experienced this in sports, but it's like. You want to play sports, but you can't make the team. You can't make the cut. I've never had, I've always made every team. I've never had a problem in sports with any sport. Didn't matter. Basketball, baseball, football. I was always, always able to make the team and, and do well. So I can't understand it here. But when it comes to preaching, teaching, and theology, it's like I can't make the team. I can't make the cut. I can't make it. I can't make it because I'm doing something wrong. And it's like, and then you, and then you turn this on. He's like, you know, we've got translators and, and thank you for listening. And we've got multiple campuses and we've got multiple people who can preach and teach. And we got a praise and worship band and we got a multimedia team. And we, and it's like, well, why? Because I'm not trying to be unkind, but if this is what people want of dealing with the gospel of John, if this is what people want, then I, I truly, I give up. I give up. Because I, I would hope that on my worst, I, I would hope if it was 15 minutes of me having a seizure and I stood in the pulpit, I could handle the, handle the gospel of John better than this. 
Now, maybe he's getting ready to prove me wrong. He's getting ready to hit a home run. It's going to be the greatest sermon on the gospel of John that I've ever heard. But so far up to this point, I'm just perplexed why anyone would even go there. I just don't get it. I actually walked into the uh, room before the service seeing uh, all the, uh, the Haitians in there doing ESL, and it was amazing. I mean, it was just incredible. So really, really grateful and looking forward to even for the, the, the Haitian service uh, that's taking place later today. Well, uh, some of you may know that at Grace Gathering, we do a lot of conferences uh, over the year. Um, several times a year for pastors and church leaders in, in the Midwest region and beyond leadership conferences. And often uh, these pastors and church leaders are here for two or three days and we do a lot of training. And, and often we, we invite uh, these leaders over into our home for a meal um, on one of those nights. And I'm just as perplexed. Who would go there for advice and how to do church? Well, I guess because they're successful, but successful at what? I just don't know what they're successful at. Like what? Like if I was to sit back and try to figure out what makes this church successful, I've listened to their praise and worship. I don't think that's much to write home about. Not trying to be mean. I know I can be a music snob when it comes to Christian music, but I just don't get it. Like it's nothing out of the ordinary. It's the same old, same old. Okay. So that's not it. It can't be the preaching. It can't be the teaching and because it's almost nothing. So what draws people there? It, it's like one of those mysteries I just don't understand. It's, it's often a lot of people and uh, sometimes it's really tight to get everybody uh, in our home. In fact, let me just show you uh, this, this last, the last one we had, which was in November. Uh, we have another one coming up uh, here in, a, in about six weeks. But uh, last November we had one, and I took a little video of how we were cramming people in every space um, uh, in, in our house. So, so here's a little video just to give you a sense of what that looked like. <laughs> Got an archive. That sounds like a lot of people, sounds like a nightmare to me, but that, but I digress. I digress. Okay. It's a video of how many people they had in their house for this thing. All right. I'm assuming this is going to fit with John 2. It's got to fit with John 2. He's showing this because John 2, we know that there was a, a marriage and there were the marriage feast. So it was a party. It was a get together. So I guess that's how he's going to draw this. Or maybe there's no connection. But here we go. So I know what you're thinking. Okay, that's not too COVID friendly, was it? Yeah, no, I get it. 
I get it. We couldn't do that uh, uh, some of the time, but we were able to uh, do that in November. Uh, actually, let me tell you a little funny, funny story of something that happened a few years ago when we had something similar. Uh, so I, I, w- I was home. We, we, we had, you know, a group of people here getting trained, and we were, they were coming over to our house. And so I was getting everything ready. Kathy was actually not feeling well, so she was upstairs laying down. So I said, I'll come back a little bit early. I'll get everything ready. And we had all these lasagnas, and I noticed that the lasagnas, like, weren't, like, really warm. They were kind of, like, lukewarm. So I thought, oh, my gosh, I got about 20 minutes. I got all these people coming. We need to have warm lasagna. And so I started freaking out. And so I said, okay, let me just throw all these lasagnas. Let me cram the oven. And so I crammed the oven. I turned it on, like, 450. And I accelerate this warm, getting this, these, these meals warm. And so I p- cranked that baby on 450 and, and I was like, okay, 10 minutes into that 20 minute window of time, the, the, the oven was smoking and, and I, I opened up all this smoke, fire alarms going off. Kathy comes running downstairs. What are you doing? What are you doing? You're going to blow the house down. And, and so it was just like this crazy, she had taken some cold medications and all of a sudden she's like, oh, okay, well, everything's going to be fine then. It's all right. It was just like this chaotic mess. And, and so people got there and we just had to have, you know, kind of lukewarm lasagna with some smoke and all the windows open. But it was great. It, it was great. You know, when you're hosting a large gathering of people and the expectation is that you're going to feed a lot of people and they're, they're going to come and you're going, to, you're going to bless them, you feel the weight of that responsibility, don't you? And it's a lot. The more people you have coming, the more responsibility that you have. I want you to imagine um, that you're in first century Palestine. And you're at a gathering that will last several days. And it's centered around a wedding. And the weddings back in the day usually lasted two or three days. People would travel from all over. And the clear expectation is that there'd be plenty of food and drink, and with clean water not easily accessible, wine was a very common drink. It could be consumed on its own, or it could be mixed with water to make the water clean. And so whatever you do, you need to have, for an event like this, several days, you need to have plenty of wine. So if we look at the map on the screen, we see a town called Cana. Now, this, it's in the midst of an entire region called Galilee. And you see that on the screen. Galilee is where Nazareth was, where Jesus grew up. There's a lot of towns around the region of Galilee, as you can see on the map. And so Jesus grew up in this area and all of his disciples grew up in various towns around Galilee, and you also see a town called Cana. And so Jesus is extended blood, nuclear family. Okay, now for all the criticisms I get, I've given, let's just be positive here. Kind of, kind of a clever way to introduce this, right? He talks about these gatherings and things that have happened and how crowded and, and the lasagna not working. Okay, so that kind of get, makes a relatable 
introduction to the text so that you can say, okay, so that maybe people can relate to what's going to happen in the text. That's good. He's giving us a list, at least a little bit of the biblical ge- geography. That's good. So that people can at least picture where this is all taking place. So a little bit of geography, a little bit of trying to make it relatable. So far, so good. Now, you can't really criticize anything here. So let's see where it's going to go. Extended blood family and many of his early disciples had were living in this in this area. And what we know is that there was a wedding in the village of Cana, and people were coming from all over. And Jesus was there, and his family was there, and many of his early disciples were there. And one of the disciples' name was John. And John was at the wedding as well. And we're going to read here a moment. John, the Gospel of John, wrote the account because he was there when it all all went down. And so here's what happens. Somehow, Jesus' family, and specifically Jesus' mother Mary, is relationally tied to the host family where the wedding's taking place. And she's connected to the coordinator and all the logistics. And somehow, some way, they run out of wine. Maybe more people came than they anticipated. Maybe less wine was available when they got it. We don't know, but we have a problem here. And it's a significant problem. And what was at stake was the shame that this would potentially cause the family. Now, I just have to at least raise the question because I've heard this preached a bazillion times, and it is in most of the commentaries. I think I go along with the same premise. First of all, is this a story simply about Jesus going, oh, no, this is going to bring shame and humiliation to my mom. I have to do this miracle to to help her. Is this, is this a story about that? Is this a story about public embarrassment or is this a story about something? What, what should be the focus? Should it be the focus on what the miracle points to in regards to Jesus or should the, should the focus be on how Jesus was so worried about the public, public shame and humiliation someone could experience or be so he's so concerned with the fact that someone will not have wine at their wedding feast like what what should the focus be that the did Jesus perform the miracle and it tells us something about Jesus or should the focus be Jesus was so compassionate and gracious to these people in a time of need where should the focus be because everyone makes it a big deal, like you know, well, this is a this is like a crisis. This is this is huge, and I, I maybe maybe there's some truth to that, but I don't know if that kind of deflects our attention to the wrong thing. You you can make your own decision. And the master of ceremonies, and somehow we don't know exactly. Mary, Jesus's mother, was connected to the family, and so she's noticing the wine has run out, and she's feeling the weight of the responsibility. Now, let's remember, this is at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry at age 30. Jesus has not been performing miracles yet. 
We know on the account that he's just been baptized, so his identity has been publicly revealed. But he hasn't been performing miracles. We know he's God's son. He's beginning to build a group of followers. And he hasn't even yet selected his 12 disciples or apostles. That hasn't even happened yet. But certainly many of them are around and in the setting. So he's with some of his disciples and his mother approaches him with this rather significant problem. The family and the family host are on the brink of major shame. I mean, everyone plays that up. Like they're on the brink of major shame. This could be life altering. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a crisis of epic proportion here. Someone ring Fox News so they can have a breaking news alert. Everyone sells it that way. I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. I just, I just don't know if we, does the text emphasize that what what does the text emphasize? I just just from a textual standpoint, is the emphasis on what this miracle points to Jesus, or is the miracle on, or is the emphasis on how Jesus is helping them avert this horrible, horrible disaster? Jesus, will you do something? Now, as we just said, Jesus hasn't been performing miracles. In fact, we're going to read here in a moment. John tells us that this event at Cana was the first sign, the first miracle. And so Mary is asking him to do something he hasn't been doing. But she's known from conception. And I'm going to, and this is very important. The miracles in John What's the purpose of the miracles in John? Are they sign miracles? And when we say sign miracles, they're signs as identifying and pointing to who Christ is. In other words, the miracle is not about the miracle per se. The miracle is not even about, you know, giving us some idea of what miracles we're supposed to do. That the miracle is simply this specific miracle was done at this specific time for a specific purpose to point to the fact of the identity of Jesus Christ being the Messiah, being the eternal Son of God, being divine. And from Jesus' birth... That God has a special anointing on her son. And she also knows that his identity has now been publicly revealed. He's the Savior. He's the Messiah. And when we say that God has a special anointing upon her son, I mean, he is the, he's the Christ, the anointed one, right? I mean, Okay, I, I guess I see what they're trying to say. I, I don't know. It just, just makes me a little leery, but okay. He's the one the Jewish people have been waiting for. And she knows that he is here on the earth to bring God's kingdom to the earth. And so being so concerned with her. To bring God's kingdom to the earth. I mean, he, he came at, in the first coming. It was a spiritual kingdom, right? So, all right. I, I don't know. Just, just, just 
trying to figure out how where they're going with this. Just asking questions out loud. Remember, when we do sermon reviews, I don't listen to them in advance. So right now I'm just thinking out loud, just thinking out loud. Relationship with this host family, knowing the massive shame is on the line, she does something extremely bold. She approaches him as he's with his disciples. She does something extremely bold. Was it extremely bold for a mother to ask the son, hey, we got a problem here? Was that, a, was that like, hey, back then, mothers did not ask their sons for anything. Like, is, is, was this extremely bold? It says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Now, John, the apostle, who isn't actually called the apostle yet because he hasn't been named one of the 12, is in the scene. And there are some other disciples who are witnessing what's going on. And this is why John, in his gospel, and he's, by the way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels, John's the only one that writes about this story. He was there. And he gives us an account Now, we're in a series here on Sunday mornings uh, called Believing Jesus. And we're working our way through the Gospel of John. In fact, we started this in January. It's going to take us about close to a year and a half to work our way through every passage in the Gospel of John. And that's what we're committed to doing. And so now we've found ourselves here in chapter 2 of this 21-chapter book. And so let's just go ahead and read the account as John describes it in the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. It's kind of interesting. He, he did the big intro. Then it felt like he was getting into the text. And now this is where he's deciding to read it. That's just from a preaching perspective. It felt like you would do your intro, then say, hey, we're currently in a series in John. And today we're at this account of the of a wedding feast where, well, everything goes wrong, just like it went wrong with my lasagna. Let's read the account that John, the apostle, gives us in John chapter two. You think that's kind of where, but you know what? You Sometimes maybe that's where he had planned to read it, and then you start going and then realize, wait a minute, I haven't read the text, and then you kind of have to stop, kind of repeat a little bit, and then go back into it. So maybe that's what happened. I'm just looking at it from a like a or, how you organize your sermon. It just seems weird that this is the time to read it, but okay. It says this. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water 
that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. So, so John is witnessing the event describes Jesus' response. And as we read the response, it's somewhat perplexing. And many people, as you read the account in John, have been confused. Like, why was that Jesus' response? Why is he asking Mary, why, why are you involving me? My hour has not yet come. It's been confusing for people. And so I want to give you a little more background to help you understand the context and why that was Jesus's. Okay, well, I'm, I am glad because compared to how they've handled the text up to this point in this series on John, they basically ignored many things in the text. So here he's going to try to give us some background so that supposedly we will understand the reasons. That would be interesting if he gave us like, in my research, here are five different approaches or four different approaches I found in regards to this text, but that's okay. He's going to at least give us one. So I'm interested to see how he's going to approach it. Response. Let's just unpack it for a moment because it's a perplexing response. If you've spent any time reading the gospel books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which shows Jesus' life and ministry. You've come across something several times as you read about Jesus' story. That often he heals someone and then he says to them, yeah, don't tell anybody. Have you seen this before? It actually happens on several occasions. In fact, let me show you one example where he heals someone who was deaf and then he told him and everyone who witnessed it, Yet don't tell anybody what just happened. We find this, for example, in Mark 7, 36 and 37. After the miracle, Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So even though Jesus, as he's healing people, he says, okay, don't tell anyone. They can't help it. I mean, would you be able to help it? I mean, you just experienced a miracle from God and they're just sharing it. But why would Jesus say, don't tell anyone? Two main reasons. Let's make sure we understand them. The first is this. If Jesus' is public if his publicity accelerated too fast, he knew the Jewish people would try to force him into a political role as king. After all, the expectation 
the Jewish people had is that when the Messiah would come, he would free them from the tyranny of Roman government oppression. And they wanted and they expected the Messiah to come and be a political figure and bring political freedom. And so Jesus had to moderate how fast his public fame spread because he didn't come to be a political figure. Okay, I, I think that's good, going to these other cross-references to come back here to try to explain why Jesus is like, hey, 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 it's not my hour. It's not my hour because he tried to regulate and control how much fame, exposure was out there because he knew that they would come and basically like, hey, you're going to be the king, get rid of Rome, take, take over, br- restore the kingdom to Israel, let's do this now, all right? And he's trying to manage that because he wants to be able to proclaim well, the truth of God's word, proclaim the message, proclaim the gospel, okay? Obey the law, because that's one of the reasons he came was to obey the law for us. So, um, all right, that's good. That's good. That's good. Politics wasn't the way he was going to give freedom. He came to bring a heavenly kingdom that penetrated people's hearts, regardless of the the political landscape. And so he was careful not to allow people to force him into a political figurehead. The second reason he told people not to spread the news too fast is because the religious leaders were threatened by him. Their temptation was to want to kill him. And it only grew with his fame and publicity. Now, this is really good because it supports my theory in John 4, when, uh, when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and he must needs to go through Samaria. Everyone takes that, well, he had to go through Samaria because it had a divine appointment with the woman at the well. No, I think he decided to leave and go through Samaria to get away from the religious leaders because every time there was conflict, they would end up wanting to kill him. And so they're, they're kind of like threatened. Wait a minute, he's making all of these disciples. This is an issue. And then Jesus is like, time to go. Let's go into Samaria. No one's going to follow us. No one's going to bother us. And then I can, well... He can preach and teach and and do different things away from the religious leaders. So I think that this helps support my my interpretation of John 4. And he knew he needed time to do all the teaching that was necessary and the discipling that was necessary. That ended up taking three years. He couldn't afford... For things to get so accelerated that he only had months, he needed years. And so Jesus had to moderate his publicity. And he had to particularly moderate how frequent his very public miracles were. And he did this by being filled with the Holy Spirit and listening to his father's voice. And that's how he discerned when he would do things that were more public and how he would operate. It was- okay, let's just, I, I get nervous. Let's just make sure we understand. 
I understand the relationship with the Father. I understand the Spirit is upon, you know, do, uh, you know, came upon Jesus. I understand all of that. So make sure he never stopped being God. He still was God incarnate. True God, true man. He never left and lost and laid aside his deity. He maintained his deity. So let's just be careful there. Well, it wasn't like he had he had his all three years planned out. He knew exactly everything that was going to happen. Remember, Jesus was fully God, but he emptied himself and became limited as a human being while, earth, while on earth. Can we say emptied himself? Emptied himself of what? He did not empty himself of his deity. He still maintained his deity. He, he took on flesh and flesh has limitations as a human, got weary, tired, need to hu- hungered, thirsted, had to, was thirsty, those kinds of limitations. Got to be very careful here. Going to run into a, a, a heresy here, getting very, very close. Which meant he wasn't all knowing when he was walking the earth. He wasn't all present everywhere. He even okay. He what? All right. Now you got to be. He's he seemingly to say he lay aside parts of his deity. We're getting into a major theological issue here. We're getting into a major theological. Now he wasn't omnipresent in his flesh, but he's still God. So therefore, still omnipresent. He 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 he's still all knowing because he's still God, right? You, you got to be very careful. Well, like when you say he emptied himself, this is getting very close to acting like he emptied himself of all deity. He lived his self, his, his, he lived basically as a man and he was just a man that was, that was directed by God and empowered by the Holy Spirit, but his deity wasn't a part of it. That's, that gets really, that gets really concerning. Sad. I don't even know the day of my return. He says it in Matthew 24, 36. Says, Jesus says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor even the Son knows, only the Father. So while Jesus was fully God, we, 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 we read in Philippians 2 that he laid aside those independent attributes so that he could be limited one place at one time, not knowing all things. And as he operated, he's listening to his father and he's being filled with the spirit and he's discerning how to respond to situations. But clearly in the interaction here, as Jesus' mother comes to him and says, Jesus, would you do something? His first response is, why are you involving me? My hour has not yet come. And he's got a decision to make. Is he going to respond? And clearly, as he's being led by the Spirit and he's listening to his Father, clearly he decides, I'm going to respond. It's going to be a public response, and this will be the first public miracle. And Mary says, do whatever he says. Now, the reason I... I, I, he never come, oh, he came really close. All right, there's a theory, there's a false teaching within Christianity called the kenosis theory. 
the kenosis theory. And kenosis is this idea that Jesus basically laid aside or emptied himself of his divine attributes. He came really close to going right there with this. Very close. I mean, he may not have been emphatic. Let me, let me read a little bit about this, all right? The kenosis, all right, it, it, so we think of this as, sometimes we think of this emptying himself, right? So it, it's better to think of him emptying himself as laying aside the privileges that were his in heaven rather than stay on his throne in heaven. Jesus made himself nothing when, it, when he came to earth. He gave up his divine privileges. He veiled his glory and chose to occupy the position of a slave. The kenosis was a self-renunciation, not an emptying himself of deity, nor was it an exchange for deity for humanity. Jesus never ceased to be God during any part of his earthly ministry. He did set aside his heavenly glory. He also voluntarily refrained from using his divinity to make his way easier during his earthly ministry. Christ completely submitted himself to the will of the Father. As part of the kenosis, Jesus sometimes operated within the limitations of humanity. God does not get tired or thirsty, but Jesus did. God knows all things, but it seems that at least once, Jesus voluntarily surrendered the use of his omniscience. Other times, Jesus' omniscience was on full display. Luke 6, John 13, and John 18. There are some false teachers who take the concept of kenosis too far, saying that Jesus gave up all or some of his divine nature when he came to earth. This heresy is sometimes referred to as the kenosis theory or kenotic theology or kenosticism to distinguish it from the biblical understanding of kenosis. There is a biblical understanding of kenosis, and that is where he lay, he, in a sense, he laid aside glory. He, he emptied himself maybe of certain privileges, but he never ceased to be God. Now, the reason the kenosis theory works is typically this is how, it, how they uh, try to approach it. See, Jesus emptied himself basically of his deity, lived his life fully as a man, but as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit. And if you are empowered by the Holy Spirit, you can do exactly what Jesus did because Jesus did it as a man and you have the same things that Jesus did. It is a false teaching. And you just got almost a little bit of a taste of it. He, he, he kept trying to be careful, but he didn't go, he didn't really explain it. He got us right there. But he didn't. I mean, to me, I think that's clearly where he's going. I cannot be dogmatic here, but oh, man, that was like right there. I can't declare kenosis theory in full display, but I, whoa, that, that got really close. Now, the other very important point here to bring up is the issue of shame. We know this would have been a great deal of embarrassment and shame. We've all been there. We've all experienced shame. It's a terrible emotion. I remember living, growing up in my neighborhood, living in the smallest house in our neighborhood. And being the only house in our neighborhood that didn't have a garage, it was always a source of great embarrassment to me. And I'll never forget in middle school, and I remember it vividly, being in middle school and having a bunch of my friends, there's probably four or five, six of us in a circle. 
And we were all just kind of having fun. And, and somehow one of my friends said, yeah, Chris, my garage is bigger than your house. And I'll never forget it. And actually he was right. His, his garage was bigger than my house. Um, and I'll just never forget. It just like cut me like the shame. The shame of being poor. You know, shame is a powerful emotion and God never intended his kids and never intended this world for people to feel shame. All right, this is weird. So he came very close to going into kenosis theory, which is false teaching, heresy, heretical. You see the Chalcedonian definition. If you need help, uh, the, Chalcedo- the Chalcedonian creed. If you need a more orthodox, theologically sound understanding of the kenosis uh, and the proper understanding of Christ's deity and uh, the proper understanding of Christ's deity and humanity, right? But, but he, so he came really close to there. And then he kind of just moved past this very important theological understanding. And now he's turning this into shame. Now, this is a question. Did God, was it, did God intend for us to never feel shame? Now, this gets into another theological issue. So God never intended? If he never intended, then why did it happen? God never intended anyone to feel shame. He never intended anyone to feel shame. Then why did it happen? I'm going to back this up. The shame of being poor. You know, shame is a powerful emotion and God never intended his kids and never intended this world for people to feel shame. He never intended anyone to feel shame. So the creator, the all-knowing creator, the all-powerful creator created a world and like, okay, in my world, no one will ever feel, what just happened? Ladies and gentlemen, how did it, how did shame get in the world? Because doesn't, aren't Adam and Eve, don't they feel shame? He had to know it was going to happen. Now, I know this gets into major philosophical questions, but when you make a dogmatic assertion that he never intended it, well, then any logical person would be like, then why did it happen? Because he knew it was going to happen before he ever created one thing. Right? In Genesis, if you go to Genesis chapter 3, all right, uh, see here. And then God called unto Adam, Genesis 3, 9, and said unto him, where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice uh, in, uh, in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Why did he hide himself? He was afraid. There's, I think there's a little bit of shame. There's a little bit of guilt. Are we to never feel shame for our sin? Are we to, did God never intend for you to ever feel shame for your failure, for your sin ever? Does the law not bring shame to you every time you read anything in the Bible that says, do this, do this, don't do that? Don't you feel shame for not doing it? It wasn't the way it was at the beginning. It wasn't his intention. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Brokenness and pain. I mean, he really drives that home. And, it, and it's just crazy. Like, like he's, he, he's turning this entire section about, man, 
Jesus didn't want them to feel shame and brokenness and pain because they ran out of wine. I mean, this is horrible. I like, really? It's almost treating this like, you know, 50 people died at the wedding feast and Jesus had to heal everyone because people wouldn't be broken and hurt. I mean, like, it just seems so... I don't know. I can understand that there'd be a little social embarrassment, but I don't know if it would be the end of the world. Like he, it feels like he's painting it, but he doubled down on, it was never God's intention, never God's intention, never God's intention. Okay. Well, then I guess God, God wasn't in control. Never was the original plan when God created humanity. Pain and brokenness was never God's original plan when he created humanity. Then so God's original plan got messed up and God didn't have control over it. So whatever messed up God's original plan was greater than God. God's will was thwarted. God's will was overcome. God's plan was destroyed by whom? Satan? By Adam and Eve? So what God created overthrew the creator. God's God's like, I didn't want this to happen. How did this happen? Like he's turning God into something weak. He's already almost destroyed the deity of Christ in his incarnation. He's almost gone full-blown kenosis. And now he's really destroying the sovereignty. He He's basically going close to open theism here. It's almost like God didn't know it was going to happen. And God, he's destroying God's sovereignty before this is over. He, he may be systematically going to destroy all Orthodox biblical Christianity as far as his teaching is concerned. All the brokenness and pain, and every single person in the room right now, you're experiencing levels of brokenness and pain. God never intended that. So everything you experience that's bad, God never intended that? God didn't intend for... Job to suffer? God, what? Literally, he's just destroyed the sovereignty of God. He is literally systematically writing the sovereignty of God out of existence. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, man. This cannot get, okay. This may be the worst sermon. Of of all the sermons I've, I've reviewed so far in this series, this may be absolutely the most heretical and theologically damaging of the others, there was just nothing there. It was, it was just, it was empty. It was, it was just not non-existent. This is, this is a train wreck. Some of you may have heard my. I'm going to back this up because I want you to hear again. I just can't believe he just told everyone that if you're suffering, God didn't intend it. Well, if I'm sitting in that church, I'm raising my hand. Well, then why did it happen? If God didn't intend it, then you're telling me God is not in control in any way, shape, or form. Brokenness and pain never was the original plan when God created humanity. All the brokenness and pain, and every single person in the room right now, you're experiencing levels of brokenness and pain God never intended that. So what you hear? He doubles down. God never intended you to feel pain or brokenness ever. Well, then all just take just just consider this. 
Think about all the pain and brokenness in this world at any given on any given day. Thousands of people die every day from starvation and a lack of, of drink of clean drinking water. Think of all the people who die from cancer. Think of all the people who are murdered. Think of all the people who are raped. Think for all the children who are molested. Think of all the human trafficking and sex trafficking that's going on. Think of all the brokenness, domestic violence, child abuse. Think of all the horrible things that go on this world every single day. And what he says is, hey, God lost control over it all. He's just like, I don't know what happened. I Like I created this world to be perfect and great and wonderful. And the next thing you know, it's been, it's been a mess ever since. And I'm trying to fix it. I'm trying my best, but it's taken a long, 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 long time because it's just, I don't know what happened. You're telling me that the God who created the world didn't know what was going to happen. Are you telling me the God who created the world doesn't have the ability to fix it? Are you telling me that God, that everything that's happening, it's not God's purpose or God's will? That like literally God is just completely lost control of the whole thing. Or are you telling me what, what God just packed up and left? Some of you may have heard my daughter's husband, Cooper, his 49-year-old dad, a week ago tomorrow, had a heart attack and passed away. Devastating. Not God's intention? Now, if you follow the, what he's just said, he would seem to be implying that God had no, God, that wasn't, God didn't want him to die. Well, if God didn't want him to die, then why didn't someone raise him from the dead? Like, I don't understand where he's going with this. The amount of brokenness and pain, confusion, it's been gut-wrenching. It's not the way it was supposed to be. God didn't want it to happen. God did not want that to happen. I, he's, he's presenting a God that's you, powerless, useless, not in charge, not all-knowing, who literally created the world and lost control of his creation and a matter of just a short amount of time. Wasn't God's plan from the beginning. I get a call tomorrow or yesterday at 8 a.m. That one of my best friends all growing up and into adulthood. His 22 year old son found him in his bed. And he was gone, 52 years old. Talking to a lot of my high school friends all day yesterday. Devastated. Completely unexpected. Brokenness and pain. Never God's intention. Doesn't want it for any of us, but we're all. God doesn't want it for any of us. Literally, God has lost complete control of his creation. He's not king. He's not Lord. He's not sovereign. He has, it's been, he's lost it all. And I, and, and look, these stories of pain are horrible. 
But how in the world are you going to compare? You're going to bring those stories into, well, they were out of wine. Well, they're out of wine. Oh, let's, that's pain and brokenness. What are you talking about? Like, that, that just seems weird that this would be where you would bring the story. You would bring all of this into this as illustrations. I, I just, like, so if God doesn't want it to happen and it keeps happening, then either one, not only did he lose control, then he's incapable of fixing it. So then why are you giving me John 2 where Jesus seems to be capable of fixing it? Is God capable of fixing all of this pain? Can he raise people from the dead? Can he heal the people with cancer? Can he save these people? So does he have the ability or does he not have the ability? And if he has the ability and he doesn't do so, then he obviously wants the suffering to continue because he could remove it. So, I mean, you're running into your, he's literally driving his car right into a massive philosophical mess. And I I don't know if he is going to even try to get anyone out of this mess. All feeling it. And so when Jesus is interacting with people, and he's bringing healing to those who couldn't walk, raising the dead, healing spiritual darkness, healing emotional darkness, healing emotional pain, healing people's depression and fear and wrong identity. He's also healing people's shame. It was never intended for anyone to feel shame. All right, so so he can fix it. So he never wanted it. He can fix it. Then why does it keep happening? This is a philosophical, like, mind-filled. I don't understand. I don't know if he sees what he's doing. He's telling everyone, God doesn't want this to happen, but God can fix it. Well, then if God doesn't fix it, then why didn't he fix it? Because he doesn't want it. (laughs) Hey, I don't want you to feel pain, but I'm not going to do anything to remove your pain. I don't want you to feel that shame, but I'm not going to stop you from doing the things that causes shame. Okay. And so when Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. It wasn't because, oh, well, they just want to, they want to party and we're just, we've run out of goods. No, it was, the issue was shame, brokenness, embarrassment, devastation. Like, he's painting this, like, brokenness, shame, devastation, because they don't have wine. Like, I, it's just so weird how he's elevating this. Station. And Jesus says, well, why are you involving me? My time has not yet come. And then clearly, as he's led by the Spirit and he's listening to his Father's voice, he decides. Well, just be careful. I mean, like, like, hey, so Jesus decides because he's told by the Father to do this or like, okay, well, we can get into all kinds of discussions about this. All right. To respond. And Jesus responds the way he always responds to our brokenness and pain. He responds with compassion and love. 
He always responds with compassion and love and fixes our pain and brokenness. Does he? Does he heal the cancer? Does he raise the dead? Does he make your arm or leg grow back when it's been blown off in Iraq or Afghanistan? Does he make your PTSD immediately go away? Does it make your sinful desires just disappear so that you'll never commit a sin that could cause shame and humiliation? Whatever you're going through right now, and I know you're going through stuff, everybody is. It's just a matter of what you're going through. He sees your pain. He sees your brokenness. It wasn't the way it was supposed to be. If it wasn't the way it was supposed to be, then why did he not stop the thing that caused those people's pain and brokenness? Why didn't he stop it? And if he can fix it, why did he not immediately step in to take away what's causing the brokenness and the, and the pain? It won't be the way it will be in the new heaven and the new earth. It's the way it is right now. And make no mistake, he sees you and he's compassionate. Now, let's be clear, as they ran out of wine, the process of replenishing the wine was about a six-week process. The water wasn't even clean. They filled the jar. They couldn't even drink the water. It was a supernatural moment. In fact, if we just look at this little slide, just thinking about actually what took place in the physical realm when he took this water and it changed in a blink of an eye to wine. I mean, this, this isn't just a story. This literally happened. Jesus was walking the earth, and this is what happened. And if you were there, you would have been totally blown away. Because this is impossible. You don't take water and turn it in the blink of an eye to wine. All right, so let's, let's follow his logic. God never intended pain, brokenness, or shame. Never wanted it to happen. Somehow he lost control of everything. However, he has the power and the ability to do the impossible whenever he wants to, but he doesn't want you to have the pain and the suffering and the brokenness. Well, if he doesn't want you to have the pain, suffering, and brokenness, and he has the ability to make it go away whenever he wants it to go away, then why does anyone suffer? Because he can fix all the problems where there will be no more pain, suffering, and brokenness. So either he can do it, but he doesn't want to do it. If he doesn't want to do it, then you can't say it's not what he wants to happen. In fact, let me just read a quote from scientist and theologian, Dr. Cliff Lewis, explaining what actually happened. He says, at a molecular level, the water, basically hydrogen and oxygen, was changed into wine that contains sugars, yeast, and water, which contain carbon and nitrogen, along with oxygen and hydrogen. Thus, by changing water into wine, Jesus demonstrated his authority over even the atomic structure of atoms by commanding oxygen and hydrogen atoms to disassemble and reform into other atoms of different configurations. 
the amount of energy it would take to perform this atomic deconstruction and reconstruction is staggering. This intermolecular energy being released is the source of the explosive energy from an atomic bomb. However, since Jesus caused the wine atoms to come back together, he would have had to put this astronomical amount of energy into the atoms in order to have them reconstruct. To do so without any visible energy transformation, the liquid indicates a mastery of natural law far beyond our current human comprehension. And he accomplished it with no physical exertion. Okay, so he did this amazing miracle that's beyond our comprehension that has all of this power. Now, let me go back to the logical situation that he, this preacher, has developed in this sermon, whether he likes it or not, he's the one who's created this philosophical problem. God never wanted pain. He never wanted brokenness. He never wanted suffering to happen. Oh, but it happened. Okay. He doesn't explain why God lost control, but God lost control of it. However, God here, even in Jesus, possesses the ability and the power to completely change natural law and do the impossible. Well, then why doesn't he then take away the things that's causing the pain, the brokenness and the suffering now? Because he obviously can. And if he can, but he doesn't choose to do so, then what does that say about the pain, the brokenness and the suffering? Wouldn't it have to be a part of God's will since God has the power to change it, but does not? Or are you going to put the blame on those who are suffering and pain and feel shame? The water changed to wine and there's an abundance of it and it's the best wine anyone's ever tasted. And many place their faith in Jesus. No matter what you're going through, no matter the brokenness and pain that you feel, Jesus sees you. He sees your pain. He sees your dysfunction. He wants to draw close to you. He wants to bring you healing. He wants us to trust him no matter what we're going through. He's the king of the universe. He's in control of every single aspect of life. Wait. So now he's in control of everything. He's in control of everything, but all the pain and suffering he doesn't want to happen. I am so, this is, I am so, I am so confused. I am so confused. He's in control of everything, but he doesn't want any pain, suffering, and shame to occur. I, 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 I am, so, this is the most, this is the most convoluted. Okay. Your pain. He sees your dysfunction. He wants to draw close to you. He wants to bring you healing. He wants us to trust him no matter what we're going through. He's the. He wants to bring you healing. Then why don't he just do it? He wants to bring you healing. He wants us to trust him no matter what we're going through. He's the king of the universe. He's in control of every single aspect of life down to the atoms and molecules. If he's in control of every aspect of life down to the atoms and molecules, 
then you can't say the pain and suffering that you're dealing with this morning, God never intended. He had to intend it if he's in charge of everything. He's the most spirit-led and spirit-filled human being that's ever walked the earth. He taught his disciples. He teaches us today to follow his example. We believe in healing. We believe in his power. He commissions us to love people and pray and do the things that he did. That's what he taught his disciples. That's what he teaches us. Sometimes we experience this healing. Other times we have to wait. We don't understand all the reasons for why things do or don't happen, but God's in control. God's in control, but he never intended you to have pain and suffering. (laughs) And we trust him. I want to end the message by showing a five-minute clip of the series called The Chosen. Oh, for crying out loud. Okay, so you can't handle the theology. You've gone kenosis theory, almost, he's almost emphatically gone there. That's a heresy. You've, you've destroyed the sovereignty of God, that God is knowing. He can, but then you turn around and try to end that God is all powerful. God knows God is in control. Even though all of the stuff happening in your life, God doesn't really want to be happening. It makes absolutely no sense. So he doesn't have time to fix the theology, explain the theology, even acknowledge the logical inconsistency. But he's got time, of course. For the chosen. So we're probably going to hear some clip from the chosen. <laughs> that's probably going to be a lot of made up dialogue. That's not even in the Bible. The last time this church gave us a clip from the chosen, it was a completely fictitious scene that we have no biblical records of it even happening. And those words even being used, but Hey, that's okay. Because you know why? I mean, we're preaching the gospel of John. Why actually re- study the text? Let's watch a TV show. That creates entire things from nothing. And the clip shows the scene of Jesus changing the water to wine and the response. Okay, so at least we're going to get an actual biblical scene. Let's see how much of the dialogue has nothing to do with what's actually in Scripture. And so let's go ahead and watch this video clip. Okay, there's no sound. I'm going to let it keep playing. There's no sound. Did they have to remove the video clip because of copyright issues? I'm going to let it play here for a second. Yeah, maybe they removed it. Yeah, there's nothing there. I'd have to go watch the video. Hang on. I'm, um, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I could try to pull up the video right now to see if they removed it. But yeah, the, my, my audio is playing and, and there is no sound. So they must have removed it. I'll give it a couple more seconds. I'll let it play while we talk. Um, I don't know what to say other than this is a, a great example of a sermon 
where you're dealing with things of great theological depth. And since he's so concerned with a sermon, trying to make it practical to everyone, and so he's going to take this, oh no, they ran out of wine. This is this is the greatest disaster in the world. And then compare that to people dying and suffering and pain. I, it's just bizarre to me. But the minute he goes down this path, he ends up in this weird, never-ending Christian duality, this duplicity, this confusion that I think shows up in the minds of so many Christians. On one hand, hey, all the pain and all the suffering and all the death, God never wanted it to happen. He never wanted it. It It did just happen. Well, why did it happen if God never wanted it to happen? Was God not in charge? Right? They don't explain it. They say, hey, if you're suffering and you're feeling pain today, hey, guess what? God never wanted you to feel that. God never wanted it. It's never God's intention. And then turn around and say, hey, God can do the impossible. He can do miracles. He can raise the dead. He can heal the sick. But I mean, sometimes he doesn't do that. Well, if he doesn't do that and I'm suffering, then how can you say God doesn't want me to suffer when God could clearly have removed the suffering? He doesn't give an answer. But then he turns around and says, but God is in control of everything, even down to the atoms, even down to the molecules. Well, wait a minute. So everything is messed up and God didn't want it. God could fix it, but he sometimes chooses not to. But God is really in control. But he doesn't really want you to suffer. And and anyone listening that walks out with any sense of sanity or understanding? And then he went straight, kenosis theory. I mean, I'm sorry. He may not want to. He may not want to acknowledge it. That church may deny it. But I'm telling you that that sermon very much led us down the path of kenosis theory. And I guess that their their five minute video clip is just not there. I'm gonna I'm gonna do something really quick while this is playing. I'm gonna open the video. I'm gonna open the video. Okay. Yes, they got a message. A video is being shared. We cannot show online. So because of copyright. Because of copyright, they cannot do that. I guess they did it before. They did it before, and they must have gotten in trouble for it. They must have gotten in trouble. Which, if they got in trouble, uh, that's interesting. They got in. Why did they get in trouble for doing that? Did the chosen people like, hey, you can't be showing our video because we like? I would be interesting to know what happened there. I, I got questions, but that's that's besides the point. There you have it. That's a church that I'm not naming. Or telling you where, because I'm not, I mean, my, my goal here was not to try to be critical. My goal here is I haven't listened to the sermon. And I made a decision, a bad decision, um, to, I'm going to go ahead and hit pause on this. I made a bad decision uh, to, to decide that I'm going to listen to their entire series on the Gospel of John, which is going to take me a year and a half. And, uh, but I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to do this. So um, every week I'm watching them, but I hadn't gotten to last week's sermon. So I thought, you know what? Why not listen to it online with everyone? And then maybe you can benefit from it. And now you, you got to benefit a little bit from it because you've got to hear a little bit of the kenosis theory and you've got to hear the utter crazy weirdness that Christians find themselves and how they deal with pain and suffering in life. They, on one hand, they don't want to blame God, but then they want to destroy God being in charge, but yet God want to be in charge. God can do it, but he doesn't do it. Christians just seem to have a hard time navigating the world of pain and suffering and death and how that fits in with a God who's all-powerful and all-knowing and supposedly a sovereign. It's, Christians have a hard time in how to navigate that. But we've got to do a better job. And guess what? You could do a better job in your sermons if you would actually deal with the issue. 
but he didn't deal with the issue. And so I don't know what kind of comfort anyone left that building with. But he decided to spend five minutes of his sermon not dealing with these major theological issues, but playing five minutes of a clip from The Chosen, which, go figure, that's the American Evangelical Church. There you go. You can email me your thoughts, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Thanks for listening to a little Saturday afternoon sermon review. Basically, what you got to do is listen to me, listen to a sermon, and talk out loud about it in real time. Nothing rehearsed, nothing planned, and uh, I think that's fun to do. And you can let me know your thoughts about the kenosis theory and how we understand suffering in light of a sovereign God. Right? Thanks for listening. Everyone have a wonderful day. God bless.